Well, it's good to be here tonight. Um, let me just say, say a few things about myself. I am, in addition to what Neil's already said, I've, I'm married. Uh, I've been married to my wife, Rebecca, for a little over 32 years now. We've got, I know. We've got uh, two kids. They're now grown. Uh, uh, they're both married, and I have three grandchildren. And uh, number four is on the way in about five, six weeks. So it's pretty exciting. So uh, Neil told me, actually, we were walking over. He said, I'm talking about Jonah tonight, right? He goes, yeah, right. OK, so we're on the same page. But um, I guess so far this semester, you've been um, working on this theme verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 11 through 12. So we'll put it up on the screen behind you. And it says, these things happen to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Now, these things that it's talking about are things that happen to people in the Old Testament portion of the Bible. And in that part of the Bible, God has posted a number of warning signs. And I refer to them as God's warning signs, God's warning labels. And of course, uh, we're very familiar with uh, warning labels, warning signs. They're just a part of modern life. We honestly, we can't pretty much can't buy, eat, or do anything without being told how dangerous it is, how we might die uh, from driving our cars or filling the cars up with gas. I mean, just next time you're at a gas station, just look around you and see about four or five ways you're, you're going to die pumping gas. I mean, it's just amazing how many warning signs are around us. In fact, uh, here's one that I, I saw at our local Carl's Jr. Uh, in the drive-thru. Um, Chemicals known in the state of California cause cancer, birth defects, other reproductive harm may be present in the foods or beverages sold or served here. Now, if you read that sign and take it seriously, you probably should think, you know, I probably shouldn't eat here. But I have never seen anyone back up in the drive through line of Carl's Jr. saying, I had no idea. And this is the way we, we handle um, pretty much most of the warning signs because I think in our culture we are overwarned. Uh, the effect, I think, is that rarely do we take warning signs or warning labels that seriously. So when we hear that God has issued some warnings, we tend to treat them the same way we do all the warnings in our life. You know, we think they're probably a bit excessive, probably written by lawyers afraid of lawsuits, and, and nothing's going to happen if we ignore uh, these warning signs. So we tend to think, as it says in the last part of this verse, we think that we are standing firm when in fact we're getting ready to fall. Now, God does not overwarn. God's warning labels in the Old Testament portion of the Bible come in the form of some pretty shocking stories. If you haven't read much of the Old Testament, I would challenge you to do it. But just get ready to be surprised. There's a lot of, what? That happened? And this happened? And they did what? I mean, it's, it's, there's some pretty shocking stuff. If you're, if you're bored, read through the Old Testament. There's a lot of interesting stuff in the Old Testament, pretty shocking stuff. And I promise you, you will be shocked. Now, thankfully, this is not how God responds every single time people do some of the things that they did in the Old Testament. Uh, so tonight we're going to look at uh, the warning that is found in the story of Jonah. Jonah is a small four-chapter book in the Old Testament. And here's the way I would summarize the warning uh, that's contained in the story or the book of Jonah. It's this, do not ignore the spiritual needs of the people around you. God is warning us, don't turn a blind eye to all the people walking past you who are part of your life and their spiritual needs. Don't, don't ignore them. Now, I doubt that any of us set out to ignore the people that God puts around us. Like Jonah, we don't intend to ignore people, just other things come up. 
and weeks go by and months go by and years go by and a life is spent and we really haven't taken much of an interest in the people around us. And that's the warning of the book of Jonah. Now, the two-word phrase, but God, I think best summarizes Jonah's heart and I think also is true of our heart when it comes to the people God puts around us. We want to care about them, you know, but God, and then we come up with our excuse. And Jonah had four excuses, four but gods, one for each of the four chapters of the book of Jonah. And I think there's still the the same top reasons today that we don't take an interest in the spiritual situation of the people around us. These are the four excuses that are still prevalent today. So let's go through them. Number one, this is Jonah chapter one, but God, I have a plan. God, I I have a plan. So let's start off, I'll read... I'm not going to read all the book of Jonah. I would encourage you to go back and do that yourself, but I'll I'll read some key portions. Here's Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. This is how the book starts. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. He said, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, uh, where he found a ship bound for that port, and after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, if you look on a map, Tarshish is the opposite direction of Nineveh. Now, God clearly had a plan for Jonah. He wanted Jonah to do something. He wanted Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh and warn them because of the spiritual situation that was going on there. The problem is God's plan did not fit with Jonah's plan. Now, we don't know exactly what Jonah's plan was. It doesn't tell us what he was intending to do. But clearly, Jonah's plan had nothing to do with going to the city of Nineveh. So, Jonah took off running in the opposite direction. So how did God respond? Did God say, oh, well, I'll find somebody else? No. God pursued Jonah in a big way. I mean, he sent a storm that nearly sunk the ship that Jonah was on. If you continue to read the story, this is what happens next. Now, when Jonah told the sailors on that ship that he was the reason for the storm and that the God who creates storms and everything else was behind this, well, they didn't want to, but they finally realized if we're going to save ourselves and our ship, we got to throw the guy who's causing the storm overboard, and so they did. And a great fish swallowed him. Now, again, I told you you'd be shocked. I mean, wow, really? Sounds like, doesn't sound like a bit of an overreaction on God's part? But again, remember, what, what is God doing in these stories? He's setting an example for us. Doesn't do this every time. It's the only time this ever happened. But God is saying, look, this is a big deal to me. I want you to get this. So I'm going to do some pretty surprising things. You know, recently I turned on the uh, TV and every one of the local channels was broadcasting a high-speed um, chase. You know, this, this happens a lot here in Southern California. You've probably had that experience. And uh, as many of those as I've seen, I still find myself just kind of getting drawn into it. And before I know it, it's 20 minutes and it's 30 minutes. It's like, well, I'm 30 minutes in. I've got to find out how it ends now. And they just keep showing and I keep watching. And the reason that we're drawn to this kind of thing is there's a lot of drama that's involved in these high-speed pursuits. There's just a whole lot at stake. I mean, there's the safety of the public. You know, as the person that's being chased weaves in and out in the freeways and goes on the surface streets and careens into people or barely misses cars. I mean, there's a lot at stake. No one knows how it's going to end. I mean, this is not you know, a TV show that you kind of, yeah, I think I know how this one's going to end. You just don't know how this one's going to end. 
So we're drawn to it. And I say this because God is involved in a pursuit of a different nature. It's the pursuit of individual people. And the same thing is true in this pursuit. There's a whole lot at stake. In this pursuit, eternal lives hang in the balance. And now these pursuits, of course, are not televised. You're not going to turn on TV and all of a sudden see God pursuing individuals. And so we don't often see them. But God has recorded a few of these pursuits, and one of the pursuits that he recorded for us is this one in the, in the book of Jonah. That doesn't come with lights and sirens, but this is what's going on here. God's pursuing. Whenever God interrupts our plans, like he did Jonah's, it's usually because he's initiating a pursuit of some kind. So if your plans get blown out of the water, just know God's in pursuit mode. Something's going on here. Something important. Now, it can be the pursuit of us, or it can be the pursuit of, in pursuit of those around us, or as it was in Jonah's case, both. God was pursuing Jonah for some purposes, and he was pursuing other people through Jonah. Now, every pursuit is unique, but they all follow the same pattern that you see in the story of Jonah. They all begin when life is disrupted, when plans get blown apart. Jonah was minding his own business, and then, as it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. You know, it's kind of like you can almost see the lights going on and hear the sirens of a police chase. Jonah's life was disrupted, and he does what most people do in those situations is they, they bolt. They run. Why? Why did Jonah run? Well, God had put his finger on one of the things that Jonah and most of his Jewish contemporaries would never do, and that is go to Nineveh, much less talk to the Ninevites. Now, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire at the time. The location of Nineveh is now modern-day Mosul in Iraq. That's Nineveh. That's where God sent Jonah. Now, Israel, you have to understand, in, in this period of history, Israel had suffered a whole lot at the hand of the Assyrians. Really, everyone in the Palestine region had suffered tremendously at the hands of the Assyrians. The reason they were the empires because they had destroyed a lot of nations around them. And so Jonah probably knew people who had been killed by the Assyrian army. You know, it's probably, to, to imagine what Jonah felt like about the Ninevites, you'd have to put yourself in, in the, the shoes of someone um, who lost someone on 9-11 back in 2001 and ask them, well, how do you feel about Al-Qaeda? Not good. The word of God's judgment against Nineveh probably would come as welcome news to Jonah. Probably the response was, well, it's about time. But Jonah had a sinking feeling about what God was up to. Imagine his thought process went something like this. Wait, you want me to warn Nineveh? Why warn them? Why not just take them out? Why are you warning them, God? And then you can just see... Jonah going, oh, no, I know what God's up to. God's up to his old tricks again, offering mercy to sinful people. I don't want to be any part of that. God is always working on a multifaceted plan. You see, there's many plans converging in this one story. Nineveh needed to be warned. Israel, the nation of Israel, needed to be moved from their national arrogance to be the light to the world that God had intended them to be. They'd become arrogant and proud about the fact that God had spoken to them and, 
no one else was good enough, and boy, they needed, that needed to change, and so God was working on that change through this story. And there were the, that group of sailors. I don't know how many, five, ten, something like that. It was a group of sailors of that ship that needed to see that the idols that they would worship to keep them safe at sea were just false gods, just carvings. They, they had no power over the sea like they thought they did. These sailors needed to see that. So God made one move and began a series of disruptions that rippled through all kinds of lives. Jonah's lives and all that knew Jonah, or Jonah's life and all those that knew Jonah, the sailors' lives, and then, as you'll see in the story, the whole city of Nineveh. So if we're going to join in God's great pursuit, part of what that means is we're going to have to hold our plans loosely. Because when opportunities come up to talk to people about spiritual matters, I can promise you it, it, was, it was not on your calendar. It was not on your schedule. You can't schedule that for 10.30 a.m. tomorrow. It's going to come in the middle of when you're, you've got a plan. And you'll think, oh, but God, let me finish my plan first, and then I'll, well, it'll be too late then. So the first but is, but God, I, I've got a plan. I've got some thoughts. I've got some priorities. And reaching out to this person or these people right now is, is not anything I've got time for. It's not my plan. The second but God in Jonah chapter 2 is, but God, I'm a failure. So Jonah spends three days inside a great fish. And in three short days... Jonah goes from saying, but God, I have a plan, to, but God, I could never be a part of your plan. I'm a, I'm a failure. You read through chapter 2, Jonah's a different guy. He, I mean, he's, he's seen how bad off he is, and he's a broken man. He's saying, look at what I did. I mean, I, I ran from you. Now I'm paying the price. Now, you would think that personal failure would be a great excuse for bowing out of God's plan to pursue the people he, that he's placed around you. I mean, wouldn't it make sense that God's looking for the moral elite to de deliver his message to the people around you? But as Jonah learned, failure is not an excuse. In fact, it's often a qualification for being a messenger of God's grace. Why? Well, the reason is because you can speak honestly about something that you've experienced. God's grace is his forgiveness. And if you've never experienced your need for that, you're not going to be a very good messenger of it. Now, I'm not saying you should go out and just make as the biggest flaming mess of your life you possibly can so you can be super qualified. No, you, you do that and you might never recover. But every one of us, has failed, and, and we all know what it's like. So do you, if you, do you feel like a failure? You don't respond, but do you feel like a failure in some way? If you do, well, good. I mean, I'm not happy for you. I'm not happy for me. But I say good because you know what that means about you? You need God's grace. You're broken like everyone is, and you know it. And you need God to put the pieces back together. You need his grace. So what I would say to you is do not forget that. Don't forget that moment. The world is full of people who feel just exactly like you do.
And there's only one solution. All of the other attempts of the way people try to handle their brokenness, they just aren't logical. There's no real answer to the brokenness of the world other than the grace of God that's found in Jesus Christ. So cry out for that grace, accept it, and then get ready to talk about it. You now know what you're talking about. Listen to Jonah's big aha moment in that slimy fish. Here's what he says. Jonah 2, verse 8. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. This is a summary statement of most people in the world. We've all got experience with this. Now, in Jonah's day, the gods of Jonah's day were very different than the gods of this day. Now, in Jonah's day, the, the top goddess was the goddess Asherah. She was number one on the, the, the top god lists. And the reason is because she was thought to control rain. She was the goddess of fertility. So if you wanted crops and you wanted rain, especially in an agricultural economy, she was your goddess. Now, of course, we know better now. We, we know that there's no such thing as the goddess Asherah who controls rain and fertility. But that doesn't mean we don't have idols. Our idols are, are more rational, but the idea behind them is still the same. Every single idol offers control, the illusion of control, safety. That's what we're looking for. Now, probably the number one money now is, I mean, it's just it's money. That's, that's the top idol. Now, you, you won't see people you know, piling up stacks of cash and bowing before it and doing rituals and stuff, but if you look at their life, it's kind of, kind of what's happening. And money offers a lot of control. I mean, with money, you can do a lot of things. Without it, you've got a lot less control, a lot less options over your life. But what happens is rather than using money wisely, we, we tend to white-knuckle it with our money. You know, we nervously you know, watch the dollars flow in and flow out, and, and it, it, it just becomes the very core of us. Sometimes money isn't so much the idol for us. Sometimes we, we take a person and we elevate that person to God status in our lives and we orient our emotions and our, our well-being and our thoughts and everything we are around this person. And of course, nobody is, truly has that gravity or weight and it just smothers and kills the relationship when we do that. Or we cling to substances or experiences that, that have predictable outcomes, and they become our idols. You know, these idols go like this. You know, I don't know what's going to happen today, but I do know how this drug or this substance is going to make me feel, how this sexual experience will feel. I, that's guaranteed. I know how that's going to make me feel, so that'll be my idol. That'll be my little, little piece of control. I don't know about the rest of my life, but for five minutes, I can feel good. For one hour, I can feel okay. And we'll do that. And the problem is when we cling to worthless idols, they cling back. The, the grip isn't just one way. We're, and they're like, and then when you try to let go, guess what? Oh, it's, it's got a grip on me. I thought I was gripping it, but it's a two-way grip. And we find out that we're now addicted to these things. Anything you elevate to God's status that isn't God, boy, it clings back. 
and you're stuck. So when we cling to something other than God, what it says, what Jonah says here, what he realizes is we end up forfeiting grace. What does it mean to forfeit? How, how do you forfeit, you know? How do you forfeit a match? We just don't show up. Why, why, would, you, why would you forfeit? Well, it's because you don't think you got a chance. Let me give you an example. Let's say for some crazy reason I was scheduled to fight Conor McGregor. Okay, here's Conor. You can see me. If for some reason I discover that I'm scheduled to fight him, what, what should I do? Forfeit, right? <laughs> Forfeit. Don't show up. Don't go anywhere near where the octagon is. Don't, don't, just don't go there. Now, the reason I would forfeit the fight is, well, it's obvious. I'm no match. You know, I don't have scary tattoos. I, mostly I don't have the muscles and all those kinds of things that he has. So I would, I would uh, as respectfully as possible, turn down the invitation. <laughs> this is what most people do with God's grace, and for the same reason. They realize, whether they say they believe in God or not, they realize that they're no match for God's moral standards. They, everybody knows. Whatever they think about the moral standards, they, they know that they've fallen short. Whatever their standards are, they know they've fallen short. They know that they're a moral failure. Everybody does. Now, they may be blustering and pretending like they're all confident, but down deep inside, they know. We all do. What they don't realize is that failure is God's invitation to grace, not a reason to run the other way. If we don't show up, if we don't come before God and ask for the grace he offers through his son, then we forfeit. It's there, but we never showed up. So what idols do you gravitate towards? We, we all have our favorites. If you're going to be a part of God's great pursuit, you're going to have to loosen, continue to work on loosening your grip on anything other than God and his grace. Because when you grab onto the idols, you lose sight of the grace, which is the message that we carry. So, but God, I'm a failure. Now, number three, but God, they won't listen. This is a big one right now. They're not going to listen to this. This is Jonah chapter three. Okay, so now God, you know, after three days in the belly of that great fish, the fish spits Jonah out. Now Jonah's ready to go to Nineveh. But I think there's another unspoken excuse rattling around inside of Jonah's head. My guess is that Jonah was scared and pretty convinced that there was no way that this city was going to listen to him. Again, because of the political reasons that I just described. I mean, it would be like, like one of us going to the tribal areas of Pakistan, you know, northeast pa or northwest Pakistan, to deliver the message. You just walk through a you know, Taliban village and just say, I just want to tell everyone here, um, God told me to tell you that he's going to destroy all of you unless you repent and turn to him. Just that's all I got to say. How well would that go? So you can see why Jonah's like, no, no, I don't, I don't. They're not. Not only they're not going to listen, they're going to kill me. That'd be a certain beheading. But of course, after three days in the giant fish, how many options does Jonah have left? You know, what's he going to do? He's going to have to take his chances in Nineveh. 
So he goes. So what happened? Here's, here's what we read in Jonah chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. Again, I encourage you to read the whole thing, but this is, this is the, kind of a summary. So what it says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. What? Now, I told you to be surprised. Just think about this. Really? All of them? The whole city? What amazing thing did Jonah say? Well, let's look at it. Forty more days and then it will be overturned. <laughs> this is not exactly the most compelling invitation to God's grace that has ever been delivered. And I, if, you know, I'd love to have video of this. I don't believe Jonah even tried very hard. I, I'm, I'm just imagining he's walking through the city going, hey, just, you guys are going to die. So you might want to repent. And then says it again and again and again. I mean, just, just try saying that as you walk around campus and see how it goes. That's not going to go well at all, right? Well, what is, what's the point here? Remember, this is a story. This doesn't happen all the time. I don't think this has ever happened any other time. So what's the example? God's setting an example here. What is it? Here's God's point. The point is this. At the end of the day, it's his work in the hearts of people that matters most. I mean, if God can take a city of 120,000 people and bring all of them to a relationship with him with a message as awful as this through a person who's got no heart for it like Jonah, this is clearly in God's hands, not in our hands. God simply asks us to play two very important roles in extending his offer of grace to the people in this world. Two things. Number one, he asks us to cover the distance between us and them. And number two, he asks us to open our mouth. Those two. This is what Jonah did. He told Jonah. Jonah had to cover a distance of 500 miles to get to Nineveh. Now, he took the long route, so it was longer, but originally it was 500 miles. Now, same kind of thing goes on today. God wants us to cover the distance between us and those who are far from him. Now, my guess is for you, right now, it's probably not 500 miles. It isn't for me. I mean, it's probably more like the distance, like, like two doors down, you know, or across the class, or across the hall. And like Jonah, you're going to have to step out of the ruts of your own plan. Me too. Extend yourself to those who appear to have little interest. You have to cover the distance. And then you're going to have to say something. You, know, you can't just stand there smiling <laughs> and think that people will encounter the truth of God with you just smiling. I mean, nobody smiles that good. You know, you, you, Nonverbal, you, know, you, can't, you, you, can't, you can't say enough to have, help people understand what, what's going on. And you may think, but I don't know what to say. I'm going to mess it up. Okay, wait, wait just a minute. What did Jonah say? 
I don't, I don't recommend you say that. That's not the example. Say this every time. No, that, that was for Nineveh. But through this story, you know what God's saying to you and me? You can't mess this up. You can't mess it up. The only th way you can mess it up is if you don't cover the distance and you don't open your mouth. But if you just keep covering the distance and you keep opening your mouth and you keep learning how to open your mouth, I'll work with that. The only mistake you can make is not cover the distance, not open your mouth. So get ready to speak. But what? I would recommend that you think through something to say. We just start somewhere. Try it. I mean, you know, one of the things you could say is, you, know, you find out something going on in someone's life that's really hard, just say, well, can I pray for you? I mean, most people are like, yeah. I mean, a few might say, no. All right. And then pray for them anyways. <laughs> but, you know, just say, can I pray for you? Or you might, you know, say, hey, I'm, I'm a part of this, this group on campus called Challenge. And, boy, it's been a really help, big help to me. You want to join me? You know, this event or that event? But what if they ask me a question about the Bible and I don't know the answer? Well, then just say, you know, I don't know. Tell your own story. I, I do know this. I know what's happened here. You know, I tell you what, I'll try to find the answer to that. Or, or maybe just, you know, get them a book. Say, you know, I can buy you a book that really helped me. You know, talk to Neil. I mean, there's some great books, you know, More Than a Carpenter or um, Lee Strobel's got some, you know, good books like The Case for Faith. Some of those things can be really helpful. So what I'm saying is if God can use Jonah's one-liner delivered very poorly to bring a city of 120,000 people to faith, I think you and I will be just fine if we just cover the distance, open our mouths. So now we get to the final and biggest excuse of them all. This is the mother of all of the excuses. But God, what about me? Jonah chapter 4. Now, the end of chapter 3 would have been a great place to end this story. I mean, it worked. Nineveh was saved. Roll the credits. End of story. But you see, the story isn't about Nineveh. Who's it about? What's the name of the book? Jonah. The name of the book is not Nineveh. The name of the book is Jonah. And all is not well with Jonah. Like us, Jonah's excuses have kept getting in the way of him understanding the real purpose for his life. You see, this life is not about our plans like it wasn't about Jonah's plans. It's not about our failures like it wasn't about Jonah's failures. It's not about how people respond to us, how they treat us or don't treat us. In the end, this life is about whether or not we will accept God's grace and then share it. That's it. Now, there's more going on in life, but that's at the core. Will we come to understand and accept God's grace for us in Christ, and will we share it? In chapter 4, God uncovers the big excuse that's behind all the other excuses, why we keep forgetting this or don't ever arrive at this. The excuse is, what about me? So what happens in chapter 4, and it's, it's, it's pretty interesting slash actually kind of funny in a tragic way, what goes on, but Jonah at this point has had it, and he unloads on God. I mean, he's furious. The gloves are off, and Jonah is letting God know what he really thinks. 
And in response, you know, God lets Jonah know what he really thinks. And then that's where the story ends. We don't even know how Jonah responded. Well, that's not a very good ending to the story. I hate it when you go to movies, it's like, well, what happened? This is the way Jonah ends. Well, what did he do? We don't know. Why? Well, see, the real question is not, what did Jonah do? But what are you going to do? What am I going to do? How are we going to respond to this challenge? Will we live a what about me life or will we live a what about them life? So I want you to listen to both what Jonah says and what God says in response. And then we'll leave it where the book of Jonah ends in your court. You decide. Here's what goes on, Jonah 4, 1 through 3. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Doesn't that sound good? Well, it's good for, you see, us, but not good for the people we really are upset with. That's what Jonah's saying. So he goes on, now, O Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. What he's saying is, I can't go back home. <laughs> I've been in the enemy camp. But the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? So what, this is what happens. After, after Nineveh turns to God and repents, Jonah storms out of the city. And he gets up on a hill overlooking the city, and he gets in a big pout. He throws a little personal three-year-old temper tantrum. And God's first words to Jonah in chapter 4 are, have you any right to be angry? Clearly, God thinks that Jonah has no right to be angry. Well, what does Jonah think? Jonah thinks the opposite. He thinks he's got every right to be angry. I mean, I imagine Jonah felt pretty strongly that he had the right to live his own life as he pleased. Not to get shipwrecked and spend three days in fish guts. That's, that's what he was thinking. And, and it's this notion of rights. This is why God said, do you have the right to be angry? It's this notion of rights that forms the bedrock of this what about me attitude. I mean, what's happening is almost every week a new right is added to the list of rights that we all have. Now, the truth of our situation is, is lost on us because of this. The truth is, we have only been given one right by God. You know what that right is? Freedom. The right to choose. And with that right, our one and only right, every single one of us has chosen death. We chose death when we decided to ignore God and his ways. That's what you do when you decide to separate yourself from the one who's giving you every breath. We all chose death. Now, everything that we get other than death is a pure, straight-up gift of God. But rather than explain all of this, the flaw in Jonah's thinking, God lets Jonah experience this for himself. Well, let's go on. What happens? Verse 5 through 9. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. You know what he's doing? I want to see the fire fall from heaven and destroy the city. That's what he's pouting about. 
Then the Lord God provided a vine, made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. If you've ever been to this part of the world, you understand how important shade is. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, I love this, God provided a worm. I never thought of a worm being a provision, but God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. So when the sun rose, you know, it got hot, God provided another great provision, a scorching east wind. <laughs> and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And he wanted to die, and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have any right to be angry about the vine? Doesn't that sound very, that's what he asked about the city. Same question, but about the vine now. Do you have any right to be angry? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. So here's what's going on. In one short day, Jonah gets so attached to a shade plant that he really begins to think about it as his right. Isn't that interesting? And when God takes that shade plant away, Jonah loses it. And God repeats his first question. Do you have any right to be angry about the vine? Okay, I want you to listen to this well-thought-out, logical response. I do. I'm angry enough to die. <laughs> Did you hear a reason? I, I didn't hear a reason. That's because there isn't one. So the question is this. How is this one-day-old shade plant a right? Well, clearly it isn't. It was a gift that was there for a day and then taken away. But in that one day, Jonah began to feel like he had a right to the shade that God had provided. What's, what's the point? What's God doing here? He's not just messing with Jonah. He's trying to make a point. The point to Jonah and to us is this. Jonah's life and our life is kind of like that plant. If it wasn't for God, we wouldn't exist. If it wasn't for God sustaining our life, we'd be dead. So how is this then our life to do with as we please any more than that was Jonah's plant to do with as he pleased? Now, we enjoy things like shade trees because of God's goodness. But God is saying, don't for a moment turn my kindness into something that you deserve simply because you're just sitting there and enjoying it. And then God brings it home, and he makes this point in the last two verses of the book of Jonah. Verse 10, 11. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from the left, and many cattle as well. Now, that doesn't make much sense to us. Okay, so as much, well, that's another way of saying lots of money. It's a wealthy city. Should I not be concerned about that great city? End of Jonah. Jonah and his bush is a glaring example of what we all tend to do. We wrap our hearts around things that are temporary and in the long run don't really matter. And one day, just one day, Jonah wrapped his heart around a bush that ended up living one day. And here Jonah's all worked up over this dying bush when just beyond the eyesight of that shriveled up bush are 120,000 people who don't know their left hand from their right hand when it comes to God. They're wandering in circles. In that great city, the people have spent their entire lives going up one blind alley after another looking for joy and meaning. 
And they keep thinking that they found it only to have failed, have it failed them. And after a whole life of this, these 120,000 people were just days away from stepping off a cliff into eternity where there was no hope and there was no joy because there was no God. And God is saying to Jonah, really, the plant? The plant is your, your big concern? See, God's heart is wrapped around the people of Nineveh, whether or not they're ever going to find him. And here is Jonah crying over a one-day-old shrub. What in the world is wrong with Jonah? Well, before you point the finger, I'd recommend that we all look at ourselves. I mean, just, just think, just this week, what is it that rose to the top of your concern meter this week? I mean, what, what, what got the variety and the volume of your, your passions, your thoughts? I mean, maybe a school project, assignment, a relationship you're in, money in your account or lack thereof, you know, job prospects, career, those kinds of things. Now, again, nothing wrong with being concerned about these kinds of things. But just so you know, in the grand scheme of things, they're kind of like that plant. They're, they're going to be here for a while, and you're going to enjoy them. And they're God's gift to you, so they shouldn't be despised. But there'll be a day when they shrivel up and, like you, they die. They won't last. And God, you know, he looks over this campus, you know, of 40,000-some students or so, and says, don't you think this is just a little more important? All of these people who are lost about me, shouldn't, shouldn't that kind of be at the top of the concern meter? I mean, these are not, these are not plants walking around. These, these are people with eternal, forever souls. They'll either spend eternity with me or without me. So what about them? You know, I think it's difficult, if not impossible, to get honestly concerned about 40,000 people that you don't know. What about the people that God has put in your path? All around you are people who cannot, when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to spiritual things, they, they, they're lost as a goose. They, they don't know their left hand from their right hand. And if someone doesn't help them, not arrogantly, but just help them, discover true spiritual north from south, well, they're going to bump around in the fog for a few decades, and then they're going to stumble off the cliff of eternity. Everybody, everybody needs someone who is concerned about their eternal life to help them. So right now, who are your five or 10 or 20 maybe? Don't get fixated on the shrubs. Don't let the shade plants dominate your heart. So looking back over Jonah then, what, what would you say? This is just for you to think about as we wrap up. What, what would be your top excuse for not covering the distance between you and those far from God and then opening your mouth? Why, why doesn't that happen for you? Why doesn't it happen for me as often as it should? Are you a, but God, I've got a plan person? Well, God has a plan too, and it's much bigger than yours, and he will keep messing with your plan until you get on to his. 
Are you a, but God, I'm a failure. You know, maybe you've really made a mess of some things, even already in this stage of life. Well, the answer to that is yes, you are a failure. And that what, that's what makes you supremely qualified for this job. Because you know what? There's 40,000 failures walking around this campus. They don't know what to do with it. You do. Are you a but God? They won't listen. And this is a big one right now. Oh, they're not going to listen. Maybe, maybe not. But again, that's not your job. That's God's job. And every time you think they're not going to listen, just remember what Jonah said and what happened. <laughs> it stands out as the all-time worst you know, explanation of God's grace and biggest response ever. Or are you a, but God, what about me? What about what I want? Well, you do matter a great deal to God, and he really does care about you, and he will provide shade plants in abundance, probably. But this life is not about you, and it's not about me. Time is critical. It's about the people that are marching towards eternity. That's what God says. That, that's what I'm concerned about, and that's what you should be concerned about. So I challenge all of us to take this warning sign seriously. Thankfully, God doesn't shipwreck us and force us to spend three nights in the belly of whatever kind of fish that was. But boy, we need to read this story and realize this is what he thinks about this. That This is a big, big deal in the heart of God. And it needs to be in ours too. So let's pray. Father, first of all, we thank you for your grace. And we admit that all of us have spent far too much time clinging to worthless idols, and some of them are still clinging to us. Pray that you'd help break the chains that might still be there so that we can experience fully your grace. We thank you for your mercy and your kindness to us. And Father, we realize that Boy, in a, in a campus this size, it's just a small group. But if one person can impact 120,000, who knows what you'll do. So I pray for each one of us. You would, you would bring to mind our five or our 10 or our 20 or maybe even just our first one that we're going to take an interest in and strike up a conversation and try to steer towards spiritual things and see what happens. God, I pray that many people walking around this campus a year from now would have discovered their spiritual left hand from their right hand because someone in this room helped them. We pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.